thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue and really hopefully close our uh, series on, sci- on the sciences in the book of Genesis by looking at the theory of evolution and asking ourselves a couple of questions about it. Last time, if you recall, we basically went through the fundamentals of the theory. We said what the theory of evolution was, and it's essentially based on two principles. The first one is that all life is related. And that is done through the, um, through the genes. And the second one is that species do change. And we've mentioned uh, mostly what we called, thank you, microevolution or microchanges, changes within species. One thing we have not, not seen or we do not know of is macroevolution, where you move from one species to the other. Uh, what I want to do tonight is spend some time looking at the weaknesses of the theory of evolution, the false weaknesses, and then the true weaknesses. And hopefully this will shed some light on where we are right now with respect to this theory. Uh, the first thing I want to then do is um, list for you the areas of challenge, Some, the ones that I consider completely sterile that will bear no fruit whatsoever, and I would recommend you don't waste your time on them, and the ones that are fruitful and are appropriate challenges of the theory. In uh, st- sterile challenges, I'll name creationism, Bailey's God, irreducible complexity, the second law of th- thermodynamics. I'm going to go through those in detail today. Um, some of you have been asking me questions about that last time, and I haven't spent much time on those, but I'm going to cover them tonight in detail. And the fruitful challenges, abiogenesis, monophyletic versus polyphyletic origins. Don't, don't note those. I'm going to go through each one of them. Just don't worry. You're not going to lose them. Something called individualism, which is a big issue in the theory of evolution. Individuality is another one. Those two seem confusing. Individualism and individuality are actually separate but we'll talk about them more in detail. Sexual orientation is another issue within the theory for which there is no um, obvious answer. Uh, The computational model for randomness and the linear progression. Those are all fruitful areas where the theory need to be challenged. I will again remind you that as far as sciences goes, today we do not have any other theory as a theory that attempts to express or explain biology. We have lots of ideas, lots of questions, but no other competing theory, no other framework that unifies our biological knowledge into one set 
that can be used to explain nature out there. Uh, one thing I would want to point out to you that as I speak, I'm speaking within the realm of science. I am not speaking within the realm of theology. So if you hear me say certain things about uh, the facts, and I'm not, and you don't hear me say God did this and God did that, because I am only solely looking from a scientific point of view. It is obvious that God did everything. But if, all the, if, if this is all we're going to say, then we may as well never study any sciences because every question we have would be, well, God did it. How do we get electricity? God did it. God made electricity. Sure, God made electricity. There's no doubt about that. Right. How do we get oil? Well, God made oil. Yeah, God made oil. Sure. How do you get a donut? God made the donut. Of course God made the donut. I mean, absolutely, it's true, God made the donut. It's actually far more profound than we really think. But it's the truth that God made the donut. No doubt about that. What about, you know, the art around here? God made the art. True. You see where this goes? Okay, what about you brushing your hair this morning? God made the brush, made the hair, and made you brush the hair. And all of that is absolutely true. Then what happens? Is that going, giving glory to God from a scientific point of view? For me to repeat to every question you have, God did this and God did that? Does it help us? No. Is that what God wants? Absolutely not. You want the proof? If you're a teacher at school, or you're teaching your children and you ask them a question, and they come back, and, I, and, the, and the answer starts with God made, or God knows. Be wonderful, wouldn't it? Be a great trick. You have ten questions in math, you sit down, and you just answer. God knows the answer. I believe in God, therefore I know the answer too, because I can ask Him. I'm done. Wouldn't that be wonderful? See, it doesn't get us very far now, does it? So I'd like you to set aside the theological issues for a second and look at it from a scientific perspective. Because if we don't do that, we're never going to be able to engage science on its own, within its own field. Let's go through this now step by step. I'm going to start with creationism. What is it? The short answer is, I got no clue. The longer answer is, and neither do you. And the longer answer is, neither those who say they're creationists know what they're talking about. And I'm going to show it to you tonight. As a matter of fact, creationists spend more time disagreeing among themselves than they do disagreeing with the theory of evolution. All right, let's start with a couple of definitions that would make sense. First of all, creationism is a belief. Okay, now I step, all right, when I step on the left-hand side, I'm doing theology. When I go to the right-hand side, I'm doing science. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm a lefty. So you know where my, my preferences stand, even though I'm a scientist. Uh, are you confused? Okay, so it's a belief we're all creationists. Anybody here not a creationist? If you say the creed, I believe in God. Okay. Ma cre what is maker? Creator. Creator. He, crea he created the whole thing. So we are creationists. Hands down, no question asked whatsoever. We're absolutely, completely, 100% creationist when it comes to belief in God the Creator. That's a point of theology. So creationism is a belief, no problem. We're all happy. As a science, there's the rub. Where is the scientific framework? 
give me a scientific framework that has predictive power either towards the past or towards the future. The theory of evolution says we are all related, meaning us who live now and those who lived 4.4 billion years ago, 3.7 billion years ago, we are all connected through the same genetic pool. There is an expressive power in that statement which is lacking in any of the creationist point of view that I've seen so far. If you know of one that has the same expressive power, other than God made it, I'd like to hear about it. So here's a couple of examples of statements that, are, that rub me the wrong way as a scientist. Amino acids formed in experiments like Miller's, never mind what that experiment is right now, are half left and half right-handed, so they will not work in the proteins of living things. That is a true scientific statement. Everything we have today in proteins are left-handed amino acids. Now, the following statement is where I have a problem. This is more scientific evidence that life could not form without a creator. How is that a scientific statement? How could that be science? Science requires repeatable processes, measurable processes. It deals with material things, things we can measure. That is a metaphysical statement that can never be repeated. God created the universe once as far as we know. That is not science. Do you understand? Even though it's attractive and alluring and interesting to us, and we really want to say, yeah, 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 we should say, no, 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 because we need to respect science. This is not a scientific statement. That's a statement of belief. And as, as, as a statement of belief, hey, hands down. Sure, I can look at nature, I can observe all of nature, and then be so amazed at the beauty of it that I would then make the leap and say, surely there is a creator. That leap is not a scientific leap, it's a leap of faith. That leap of faith does not contradict science, but it is not scientific. Nor should it be, nor will, will it ever be. Science neither proves nor disproves the existence of God. It's not its business. It's not in the business of determining existential divinity. It's in the business of telling us something about the material world, and that's it. It's the business of theology, the higher science, the science that contains the most sure truths, to say something to us about God. Both of them are rational. Both of them are rational activities. You know that blind faith is an oxymoron? There's no such thing as a blind faith. Because faith demands assent of the reason, of the mind. It's a rational action on our part to move our will or get our will, all the information required for it to make that move and say, I believe, based on what I know. And most of the time, when you meet people with profound faiths, they are very rational. Is this making sense? So, I can't infer from any scientific experiment whatsoever the existence of God, as in A plus B equals C, repeatable every single time. I can infer by an act of faith that God exists through the influence of grace in my heart. Yes but not through science. All right? Now, here's the fundamental problem I have with creationism. It isn't one theory. It's like the Protestant churches out there. There ain't one of them. They're a whole bunch. So you have a whole continuum that starts with flat earthers, 
Those among the creationists who hold that the earth is flat. Yes, they exist. Still, then you have the geocentrists. They're creationists. But they believe that earth is fixed and all the other planets and the sun are rotating around it. Then you have the young earth creationists. And these can be also subdivided between those who are geocentrists and those who are not. They're all creationists. In particular, you have a subgroup of young earth creationists called the Omphalos. And I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute. Then you have the old earth creationists. Those who believe that earth is actually old. But not in a straightforward manner. You have the gap creationists. Who believe that between verse 1 and verse 2 of the book Genesis... Billion of years went by, called the gap. You also have the day-age creationists, and the progressive creationists, and the intelligent design creationists. You also have evolutionary creationists, and theistic evolutionists. They're not the same, right? We tend to fit in that last one, theistic evolutionists, from a theological standpoint. Then you have the methodological materialistic evolutionists, all right, which is something we also are, uh, which is compatible with our faith, meaning that from a methodology point of view, when I look at the facts, I'm going to espouse a materialistic point of view because I'm studying only matter. Makes sense. And then you have the philosophical materialistic evolutionists, like Dawkins, who says there's nothing else but matter. You have a whole range, and I'm sure if you bring two creations, put them in the same room, you're going to probably end up with three opinions. All right? Now, to be fair, if you bring three, two evolutionists and put them in the same room, you get them to talk about randomness, you're going to end up also with three and a half opinion. Probably the half being a random one. So this whole thing is very muddy. So when people say creationism versus evolution, what do they really mean? Well, I have no clue. I want to teach creationism. What are you teaching exactly? What's the framework? Are you teaching young earth, old earth, Geocentric, gap, what are you teaching? <clears throat> you understand how this really mimics and mirrors and represents really a Protestant line of thought? It's not really Catholic. Let's go through those <clears throat> to give you an idea what, what they're about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Flat earthers, no surprise that, believe that the earth is flat and is covered by a solid dome or firmament. Waters above the firmament were the source of Noah's flood. And this belief is based on the literal reading of the Bible, such as references to the four corners of the earth and the circle of the earth. Few people hold this extreme view, but some do. Um, it used to be that the International Flat Earth Society, Box 2533, Lancaster, California, was one of them, and a a man by the name of Charles K. Johnson was its president, and he was receiving letters from all over the world, people wanting to know about flat flat earth from all over the world. He basically says, according to Mr. Johnson, Moses was a flat earther. Why? Uh, Well, because the Flat Earth Society was founded in 1492 B.C., when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and gave them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. How does he pull this rabbit out of a hat? I don't know. But what I do know is that a, an interpretation of Scripture that tends to be based only on the English language, taken completely out of context, 
makes you say really interesting and fun stuff to Scripture, but it's certainly not scriptural. Okay, there are more heresies born out of Bible studies than anything else. Okay, geocentrism. Geocentrists accept a spherical earth, but deny that the sun is the center of the solar system or that the earth moves. If the earth doesn't move, what kind of physics do you have? You're going to have to somehow convert Newtonian physics back to something else that is based on the Aristotelian old system with all the 40 circles to explain the movement of the planets. How do you account for that? Oh, by the way, the flat earthers and many uh, geocentrists believe that NASA never went to the moon. It's a joke. right? They did it in the Mojave Desert, took the movie there. Likewise, there is no space station. Okay, It's all pretend, and, and, and they're basically... They can't even fly the shuttle. Never happened. So the uh, geocentrist basis for the belief is a literal reading of the Bible. Uh, it is not an interpretation at all. It is what the Word says. This is uh, sort of uh, uh, one of their position. They both reflect a cos- an, an ancient cosmological views. Tom Willis, who is a modern geocentrist, was instrumental in revising the Kansas Elementary School curriculum to remove reference to evolution, earth history, and science methodology. So in the case of Kansas, I'm sure you heard about this case, he is a geocentrist. So his version of creationism is the, 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 the earth is the center of the, of, of, of the solar system, if not of the world. All the planets revolve around it, and they want to teach this as science to our children. You understand why there is an upheaval in the scientific community? It isn't just a plot among atheistic scientists wanting to thrust their agenda down their th- our throat. Where some are like that, but many are not. And it's a legitimate, legitimate concern that was being taught under the geocentrist model. It's simply not science. A couple of references for you if you want to check them out. The biblical astronomer in Cleveland, Ohio. Whew. It's not in Kansas. I mean, it's not in California for once. So this is www.biblicalastronomer.org. And there's also, Tom Willis has a website called www.csama.org. So uh, they're out there, and uh, they have websites and are very active. Young Earth creationists, you're probably more familiar with them. They claim a literal interpretation of the Bible as a basis for their beliefs. They believe that the earth is 6,000 to 10,000 years old. That all life was created in six literal days. That death and decay came as a result of Adam and Eve's fall. And that geology must be interpreted in terms of Noah's flood. That's one I just don't understand. How long did the flood last? Beginning to end. Pardon? No, actually longer than that. About a year. About a year, because it was progressive, right? One year, it rained. For one year, the earth was damp. Very damp everywhere. I want to understand how you can explain that one year of rain could affect the entire geology of the planet. It's kind of a little bit hard. I mean, if it rained for a thousand years, yeah, I can understand that. Water needs time to shape geology. One year is really difficult. It's very difficult to shape geology based on one year of rain that we later on will be able to see or infer. 
there are certain facts really interesting about that. Are, that they're very fa- there are interesting facts that could be explained through the flood. Yes, but explaining all of geology through the flood—that's that's a really interesting stretch. Anyhow, a couple of um, the young Earth, um, you know, creationist is probably the most influential brand of creationism today. Uh, the Institute for Creation Research, ICR, is in El Cajon, California, www.icr.org. Uh, Answers in Genesis, AIG, is in Florence, Kentucky, www.answeringenesis.org. The Creation Research Society, CRS, St. Joseph, Missouri creationresearch.org, and creation science evangelism. Creation science evangelism in Penascola, Florida, drdino.com. And there is also now a museum, Creation Evidences Museum, in Glen Rose, Texas. Yes, the one in El Cajon, it's the uh, Creation Research, Institute for Creation Research, icr.org. All right, and again, the problem with all these different groups is that none of them has an actual scientific corpus that forms a framework that explains everything from a purely scientific point of view. Yes. No, I didn't say that that's what they say. I'm not even convinced that they believe that all the land masses were connected. Remember, their belief is that... Uh, the question is, do they believe that all the land masses were connected on Earth and then one year of rain broke it up? I don't think we can infer that from um, the fact that they relate everything to the uh, flood. The, the, the point about it is that they believe Earth to be 6,000 up to 10,000 years old. So all the actual measurements, all the studies we have, are effectively rejected. Uh, one of the arguments they will have is that the carbon-14 dating cannot be trusted because the, um, the um, rate of... Um, yeah, the rate of de- decay of the carbon-14 is not constant. And that in itself is a problem from a point of view of believing in a rational God. Why would God be playing tricks on us? Why would he be switching the, 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 the laws of physics of the universe to make it really hard for us to understand creation? A rational God would actually favor constant laws because they are really a reflection of his glory. So, some, so, but I don't, I, I'm not saying that they believe that water really broke the continent. I'm not even convinced that they believe that the continents were any different from what they are right now. Okay, Omphalos is the, um, is, was first expounded in a book by that name by Philip Henry uh, Goss in 1857, by the way. And he argues that the universe was created young, but with the appearance of age. That's an argument you will hear today to explain how we have these distant galaxies. Because we know from the theory of Einstein that the speed of light is 300,000 kilometers a second, 186,000 miles a second, and that's something we can measure. Anybody on Earth can measure that. What if it's measurable here on Earth, and that's the speed of light, and we're seeing things through the telescope, how could you explain to me that the universe is 6,000 years old, or 10,000 years old, or whatever? Answer, it's, it's a trick from God. It looks old, but really it isn't. That is something that can only be conceived in America. You know why? 
Because nowhere else in the world, they used to build homes and make them look old. You build a home, you make it look new. Because you have a whole bunch of old stuff around. So you're happy it's new. You know, if you've been to uh, New Mexico, they have the faux stecco style. It's not real stecco, it's a faux stecco. Anyhow. So, uh, White, Combe, and Morris in 1961 argued that Earth's original soils were created appearing old. So the position is sometimes satirized by suggesting that the universe was created last week with only an appearance of older history. But the point is, how far would you drag that process? Why wouldn't an atheist tell us, right, that the whole religion of Christianity was invented two years ago with the appearance of being old? Do you understand? Old creationists accept the evidence for an ancient earth, but still believe that life was specially created by God. What does it mean to say that life was specially created by God? They're not saying life was created by God. They're saying, key on the word, life was specially created by God. What what do they mean by that? They mean that God was the first agent and the only agent in the creation of life. That there is no intervening intermediary agents. All right? So effectively, every species was created by an act of will on God's part directly. God let the universe expand, and once the universe expanded and the earth cooled down and everything was ready, then he went zap, 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 created all life. That's what they mean by specially created. By the way, these are not acts of miracles. You, you may hear some of the evolutionists speak of those as God making miracles. That's actually technically wrong. That's not a miracle on God's part. Because if you really think about it, God doesn't do miracles when there are no humans to witness for them. The purpose of the miracle or the sign is to showcase His glory. And He's not going to do that for Himself. That's why we say just an act of special creation on his part where he intervenes in a supernatural manner in the order of nature to effect a new creation. We, the, the church teaches infallibly that he did that with Adam when he infused in Adam a supernatural soul and he did it again with Eve when he created Eve out of Adam. Those are to be taken as, uh, as um, articles of faith. But beyond that... Uh, for us to say that uh, God created everything in almost the same way, uh, ironically, reduces, takes away from the dignity of man. Because every other creature was created in the same way. Right? The only two creatures, in a sense, that were created by special creation are what? The angels and man. All right? The angels and man. All right. American scientific affiliation... In Massachusetts, Ipswich, Massachusetts. Um, You can find them at www.asa3.org. And they have a periodical, Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith. Gap creationism, or restitution creationism. This view says that there was a long temporal gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, with God recreating the world in six days after the gap. Why would there be a gap? I mean, why would you need a gap? Unless you need to retrofit scientific facts into your belief. 
There's no other reason for it. All right, so a reference would be Armstrong, Herbert Armstrong, in a book he wrote, Mystery of the Ages, and published in 1985. And Jimmy Swaggart, if you've heard of him, holds also to this position, gap creationism. Day-age creationism interprets each day of creation as a long period of time, even thousands or millions of years. So, so far, it's kind of a little bit similar to what we talked about when we said we can look at the days on Earth right, as a 24-hour, literally 24-hour day, yet at the same time, if you change your frame of reference based on the theory of relativity, these same periods will, be, will have, will have in, in, in another different frame of reference, you will have a clock that is ticking a lot faster. So remember, the position we espouse is not that the 24 hours on Earth are actually long period of time. They're exactly 24 hours. So we can defend a literal reading of Scripture, yet at the same time, say, using the theory of relativity, that in another frame of reference, you'll have longer periods because the clock are ticking a lot faster. Here they're saying they can be interpreted as long periods of time. Um... And so day-age creationism was more popular than gap creationism in the 19th and early 20th century. But then, hey, things change. Uh, who, who, who stands by day-age creationists? Life, how did, we, how did it get here by, uh, by evolution or creation, published by the Watchtower? Yes, they're day-age creationists. If you don't know what the Watchtower is, this is the publication house for the Jehovah Witness. Okay, and pardon? Day age, day age creationists. All right. Progressive creationism is the most common old Earth creationism view today. It accepts most of the modern physical science, even viewing the Big Bang as evidence of the creative power of God, but rejects much of modern biology. So, progressive creationism is sort of saying, "Okay, I'll, I'll stick to the Big Bang. I'll accept it." But I reject biology. They, st- they, they, they stop at the, bi- at the door of biology. Again, uh, progressive creationists generally believe that God created kinds of organisms sequentially in the order seen in the fos- fossil record, but say that the newer kinds are specially created, not gen- genetically related to older kinds. Okay? So again, there's this special creation of the newer kinds versus the older kinds. Um, so they're, they're closer, but they, they have this, this sort of separation between the two where you inject, again, faith into science, and we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, reasons to believe, uh, they're located in Pasadena, California, www.reasons.org. Hugh Ross is the one who is uh, on that website. Intelligent design creationism. How, how many of you have heard of intelligent design? You've heard, a lot of you have heard of it, right? Okay. Intelligent design creationism basically is Paley's argument repackaged. Um, They essentially appeal to the complexity of life. We're going to talk about them. Their argument is technical. It is mathematical. It is microbiology. It uses mathematical, mathematics, microbiology, and uh, and uh, information science. However, today, intelligent design creationism is almost an umbrella of an anti-evolution position. It's easier to define them um, the way Canadians define themselves. 
Canadians. I'm Canadian. Yes, a Canadian. What, are, what is a Canadian? We're not Americans. All right. So what is a Canadian? We're not French. Okay. What is a Canadian? We're not British. Okay. What is a Canadian? Uh, all right. Canadians have, really have a hard time defining themselves in a positive statement rather than just negatively that we're not. Right. And here you have the sort of same situation where you, uh, you, you define yourself as being not an evolutionist, but what are you? Well, it's not clear. Okay, Discovery Institute in Seattle, uh, Washington, Center for Renewal of Science and Culture. You can find those guys at www.discovery.org. And then that's where you have Philip Johnson, Michael Behe, William Dembski, Paul Nelson, Jonathan Wells, Stephen Mayer. They have a periodical, Origins and Design. Behe Michael wrote a book called uh, Darwin's Black Box. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, William Dembski wrote The Design Inference. And Johnson, Philip, Reason in the Balance. There's also Davis, Percival, and D.H. Kenyon, who wrote of Pandas and People, uh, published in, in 1989. And in, in one sense, I have uh, quite a bit of sympathy towards their argument from a theological standpoint, but I have none from a scientific standpoint. They just they don't hold water, and I'll show you why in a minute. Evolutionary creationism differs from theistic evolution only in its theology, not its science. It says that God operates not in the gaps, but that nature has no existence independent of His will. That's a theological st statement to which we all ascribe. So far, so good. It's theology. It allows interpretation consistent with both the literal genesis and objective science. For instance, they allow that the events of creation occurred, but not in time as we know it, and that Adam was not the first biological human, but the first spiritually aware one. Hogwash. It makes no sense. How could you be first biologically human and not be human? Which means you have a supernatural soul. Right? But be it as it may, it's an attempt. Schneider Susan, 1984, Evolutionary Creationism. Torah solves the problem of missing links. All right, www.orot.com. Theistic evolution says that God creates through evolution. Theistic evolutionist varying beliefs about how much God intervenes in the process. It accepts most of all modern science, but it invokes God for some things outside the realm of science, such as the creation of the human soul. This position is promoted by the Pope and taught in mainline Protestant seminaries. So that's a much closer Catholic position, although I'm not saying that the Pope teaches this. This, this, is, um, this is not a proper statement. John Paul II stated that there is that the theory of evolution is more than a hypothesis now, and Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI has also opened the theory of, of evolution. And there are good reasons for it, uh, to be so. Okay, and then the, on the other side of the aisle, methodological materialistic evolution and philosophical materialistic evolution, these are philosophies about the theory of evolution. One is simply saying, from a point of methodology, I have to be materialistic. I only look at what is material in front of me, and that's what I'm dealing with. And that's appropriate for the hard sciences to do so. The other one it takes it one step further and says there is nothing beyond what we see. So those of you who've studied philosophy will recognize this under, recognize the old concept under a new robe. We used to call it phenomenolo phenomenology. I can say it better in French because I studied philosophy in French than in English. Phenomenology, or the basically phenomenology, positivism, reductionism, 
all those three concepts is the same thing as this thing. Basically reducing everything to only what we see, touch, experience. All right, nothing beyond that. All right, this is a philosophy, this is not science. Okay? So overall, creationism to me is a very confusing thing from a scientific point of view. I don't understand what the theory is. I don't understand what it says. I know that there are many smart people working in this area that can poke holes at the theory of evolution, and they have good arguments. No problem there. But that does not make it a theory. Show me a theory. Show me a framework. Show me predictive power. Show me something that explains all of life on Earth from a scientific point of view. That's what I'm looking for. And, I'm, and I would wish that instead of spending time sort of attacking the theory of evolution, that would spend more time trying to build something else that would work better. Because by no means is the theory of evolution a panacea. I mean, it has a lot of holes. But let's deal with the real holes, not imaginary ones. All right, Paley's God. Paley's God is sort of the basis, the foundation for all that stuff that you find in creationism. William Paley lived in, born in 1743, died in 1805, was an archdeacon of Carlisle, and was dealing with a peculiarly British affair that arose to the complex interaction of politics and religion in England in the early 18th century. In particular, the emergence of deism, or a view of God, as sort of a completely separate and remote from everything else. We need to remember that in the 18th century, England was facing the Industrial Revolution, and that revolution was changing everything, and was based on a Copernican model that changed the universe from this mysterious, mysterious um, sphere where one could more easily, in a sense, see the action, activities of God to this very materialistic, mechanical model based on Newton that can calculate the movement of the planet, everything looked like a big clock. And that was a cause for a crisis of faith. And so Paley comes around and he basically says the following. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were, were, and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew, to the contrary, it had lain there forever, nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer, which I had before given, that for anything I knew, the watch might have been always been there. Yet why should this answer not serve for the watch as well as for the stone? Why is it not admissible in the second case as in the first? So far, it sounds like a really rational argument. Walking along, you see a stone, and somebody asks, who put it there? And you say, well, it probably was there forever. Who cares? But if you found a watch... And somebody says, who put it there? And you say, it's been there forever. You have a problem. Right? And he says the question, now why? Why can we treat the, the watch differently from the rock? The mechanism being observed, it requires indeed an examination of the instrument and perhaps some previous knowledge of the subject to perceive and understand it. But being once, as we have said, observed and understood, the inference we think is inevitable that the watch must have had a maker, that there must have existed at some time and at some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed it for the purpose which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. Basically, you look at the watch, you observe it, and you conclude somebody must have made it. All right? Now you see the inference. We look at the world, we see how it works, and therefore we conclude somebody must have made it. And here's the rub. St. Anselm made the same argument. 
But St. Anselm, Saint Anselm's argument, what we call the proof of God's existence, was made from a theological point of view. It was rooted in faith, not in science. St. Anselm was not sitting down to prove by A plus B equals C that God actually exists. In the case of Paley, he's basically saying science, based on Newton's analysis, show us that the universe acts like a clock. Therefore, since every clock we know on earth is made by somebody, it follows that the clock, which is the universe, is made by somebody, that somebody is God. End of proof. I just proved to you that God exists. What's the danger? Einstein comes around, shows us the universe is not a clock, so goes the clock, so goes the proof, and so goes God in the minds of many who attach their hopes on that proof. You see how this is no different from a reducible complexity argument? It's the same issue. Why? In a reducible complex argument, what is the argument? There are some biological parts that are too com complex to come into existence and, and uh, function without all their parts being present. So the perfect example is not a clock this time, it's a mousetrap. If you look at a mousetrap, every piece of the mousetrap must work for the trap to work. If you take one piece, the mousetrap does not work anymore. Therefore, in order to have a mousetrap, you have to have all these pieces together. Yet, if you look at any of those pieces separately, well, what purpose do they serve? None. The eye is like that. It's like a mouth, mouth, mouse trap. You need all the parts of the eye for the eye to function. Without all these parts, you don't have an eye. However, we said in evolution that things progresses randomly. In order for the eye to function, you have to have things progressing randomly in five, six, seven, or maybe more different areas and all coming together for the eye to be formed. Obviously, this cannot happen. Therefore, God exists. That's how the, the, this concept of re, the, 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 the argument of reducible complexity goes away. What is the danger? You hang your belief on a reducible complexity. Somebody comes along and shows us that actually there is a way for evolution to evolve an eye. So goes the reducible complexity. So goes your faith. And so goes God. You never ever hang your faith on science. It'd be like somebody trying to uh, what would be a good example? Yeah, somebody trying to um, hang their belief in the good behavior of their children based on the way they can manipulate a keyboard. They look at the kid. He's typing real fast. He's a touch typist. He types 60 words a minute. Everything is a-okay. This is as silly as the other one. You just can't do that. That's why the, concept, the principle of reducible complexity doesn't work. Not only that, it doesn't work for another fundamental reason, which is, over, which is called overloading. Evolution, one of the power of evolution is precisely the overloading of, of organs. An organ may serve multiple purposes, and its purpose may change as life evolves. So those parts of the eye that we consider all working together for vision may have existed separately, serving completely and entirely different purposes. So whether this is true or not is a different issue. This is speculative. But the point is that the theory of evolution has in it the power, it has part of it make up the power to consider organs under different, from different point of view, serving different purposes. Whereas irreducible complexity says, this organ today functions this way, 
When it was created back then, it was created just for that purpose. Since it's too complex to be created, it could not have been created back then through evolution. Therefore, evolution is wrong. Sorry, it doesn't work. Nice try. And now we waste a lot of our time and energy over these types of arguments, which are really sterile and gets us nowhere. The second law of thermodynamics, that's my favorite. I have people come to me and say, yeah, what about the second law of thermodynamics? All right. What is the second law of thermodynamics? Let's just understand it. Entropy. You've heard of entropy. Most people have heard of entropy. Most people don't know what entropy is all about. So just very briefly define the terms. That thing, the second law, traces its origin to the French physicist, Sadi Carnot, which is really funny because I studied in, that, uh, in, uh, in the lycée in Paris that is named after him. Don't have a lot of good memories, but anyhow, that's a different story. Anyhow, so he's the one who came up with this thing. And what does it really say? Well, there's multiple variations to this law, but the basic law in non-mathematical terms says this. There are certain phenomena in, 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 in nature that are irreversible. You can't reverse them. They're not symmetric. I've already mentioned that to you earlier on. This is the only law of physics that requires time to move in one direction. can't go backward. That's the only one. Basically, heat transfers always in one direction, from hot to cold, not the other way around. And if you have a system which is closed, closed system, constrained system, not open, closed, eventually everything will fall in equilibrium. From a heat perspective, everything has the same temperature. Tepid. And everything is tepid, therefore nothing is moving. Because you need energy to move molecules, therefore everything can come down. That's really what the theory, what the second law of thermodynamics is saying. That's all that it's saying. Now people use it in this way. First, they base it on a metaphor. Well, how do you understand the second law of thermodynamics? Really easy. If you leave your house and don't do anything to it, there's dust all over the place. And you have to go fix it. Even though no one is living in there, it gets dirty. You have to go clean it. If you leave a car out there on the street, it's going to rust. And then it's going to get destroyed. Therefore, things left to themselves, right, go bad. How could you explain that, in the case of theory of evolution, things are actually progressing? This is violating the theory of the second law of thermodynamics. Because instead of sort of evolving towards an average nothing... It's actually progressing from a cell all the way to the human being. Well, that can only happen if somebody is acting upon these objects to move them in the right direction. Therefore, there must be somebody acting on them. Therefore, God exists. Okay. The key of the second law of thermodynamics is the system must be closed, closed, not open, closed. The problem is that Earth is not a closed system. The universe is closed, not Earth. So whatever entropy is being gained on Earth by the theory of evolution may be lost somewhere else. It's just a local maximum. It's not a, it's not a global maximum. It's a local maximum. Right? And it could be, you, could, you could be having loss of entropy somewhere else to balance it out. So you can't use the second law of thermodynamics against the theory of evolution. You know, how do publishers know when an author is a, an amateur? When he sends them a manuscript and he puts C copyright next to his name. They immediately know they spot an author who is an amateur. You know why? Because by law, as soon as you send a manuscript to an author with your name on it, you have a copyright. How do you spot an amateur trying to attack the theory of evolution? 
second law of thermodynamics. Don't use it. It doesn't get you anywhere. All right. Okay, let's see, how far are we? Okay, 50 minutes. Let's not now look at those aspects where really, th those are the aspects of the challenge within the theory. Those are the fruitful ones. These are the ones you can go to someone who, who holds to evolution and ask them pointed question on a scientific ground. The first one, abiogenesis. Abiogenesis. What is abiogenesis? The creation of life from non-living matter. What is the origin of life according to the theory of evolution? Answer, there is no answer. We don't know. There are lots of interesting research going on right now. Nothing conclusive. We really don't know how life came to be. The, in, according to the theory of evolution, let me rephrase that. According to evolution, it's not the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution requires life for it to function. Without life, there's no evolution. Make sense? Okay. Many theorists in the field who are evolutionists are trying to push the envelope beyond life and try to use the same model to explain how life came to be. The question we can ask them very fruitfully is why do they think it's going to work? On the one hand, the answer is because it would be really cool if it did because you have one law that explains everything. However, we can point out to them that in the theory of the Big Bang, we now know that the physics that we use today cannot be used to explain what happened before Planck's time. Remember, that's the time when the four forces of the universe were completely combined into one. So we have to have a different physics. Physicists admit to it. Why is it that we, can, we must not have a different type of biological theory to explain how life came to be? That is not being explored right now because the theory is extremely immature. They haven't yet thought about it differently. Because they really don't know what happened. We don't know. Of course, we're all extraterrestrial. That's a different story. Okay. So, the theory of evolution presupposes life. It does not extend beyond that point. We don't know how to explain what happened before. Okay. That's one point we can pin them on. The second one, monophyletic descent. Remember when I told you all life is, all life is uh, uh, related? That's based on the notion that we have a tree. All the species are, go all the way back to one cell. Yet, at the same time, evolutionists today are the ones who assert that there is life everywhere in the universe. Okay? You would ask them that question, and many of them believe there is life out there. Okay, so let me ask this question now. Is life out there and life on Earth monophyletic? How far do I extend that tree? How far do I go? I have a planet here on Earth, and I have a planet that is 50 billion years away. Do we come from the same source of life? It would seem highly unlikely that we actually same, share the same ancestor. First of all, why should we have DNA out there? That would be really amazing if you had life based on DNA structure, just so we have it here, according to the theory of evolution, right? Secondly, assume we did... Can we say that it's the same extraterrestrial that actually filled both planets 50 billion years apart? Probably it would be more likely to say that we are in a, in a, in a facing a polyphyletic descent, meaning multiple ancestors. Well, if we have multiple, if you have an ancestor on Earth and an ancestor on that planet, why can't we have multiple ancestors on Earth? 
Why is it that the process that gave, that brought life somewhere on earth in one localized point, say Africa today, could not have brought life simultaneously in another part? Why are we tracing all the, all the species back to one common ancestor? Why can't we have multiple ancestors? And really, they don't have an answer to this one. Because the DNA record does not establish infallibly that we have one common ancestor. We can have the same process that had brought life everywhere. And you know what? Statistically, it's a lot easier to argue for something that brought life everywhere about the same time than for something that brought life in an extraordinary manner in one location. This smacks more of an accident. So that's something where we can engage the theory of evolution in a much more fruitful way and force them to think about the origin in, and avoid all the contention and arguments that we're having so far. So essentially, is a monophyletic descent planetary? Is it solar system based? Is it cosmic? And if it's planetary, why planetary? What is the boundary around that? Well, we don't know. We, we, we don't have a model, you see. We don't have an operational model to explain how this has happened. So why, why are they telling us that it is one ancestor? Individualism. Remember that the theory of evolution is based on the notion that we have individuals in a species, and some of them, when they, have, when they breed, mutation happen in the breeding process, and sometimes the mutation is favorable, and therefore you have advances. So what it is based on? It's based on the notion that we can credit an animal's success at breeding to what it does by itself. Individualism is built into the theory. You have to have individuals, and out of those, a random number of them have random mutation occurring into their genes when they give birth to, the next, to their offspring, and therefore you have, right? Okay. What do we do with ants? You know how ants breed, don't you? Only the queen. All the other guys, they can have all the mutation they want. They can turn, they become Superman. <laughs> it does nobody any good, because you know what? They don't get kids. Only the queens. So the question isn't only the fact that we have fewer queens and soldiers. The question is, how do you apportion the credit appropriately when you have to have cooperation among a whole group for breeding to take place? Okay? That's a serious problem in the theory of evolution. There's no answer to it today. But it gets more interesting. So not only the ants, the bees are in the same boat. So breedings in most species rely on a biological infrastructure. It isn't just one individual going out there, yoop de doo I'm breeding. You have to have a whole structure to support that. Think of wolves. They're in pack. Think of birds. They're in flocks. There is a network of support to allow breeding to happen. How do you portion that in the process of breeding? What is the impact of this? How do you apportion the credit in a multi-level system to explain how evolution takes place? No answer. It's only individualistic. Okay, that's one problem. The other one is individuality, which is a different problem. Individualism is how do you tell me what is the real part of the, what credit you give to an individual in the process of evolution. Individualism is what's an individual. It's a more different problem. This problem occurs when we can't figure out what an individual is to begin with. So when we think about mammals, pets, livestock, even ourselves, we know what an individual is. 
But when you move out to the rest of the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, it gets a lot less clear. Think of grapevines. How do you make grapevines? You take a branch, you snip a branch, you plant the branch. You get another grapevine. And you take another branch of this one, you cut it in. Okay, what's an individual? Remember, an individual is what? It comes out of a set of one genome, right? One set of genes to make an individual. Right? All those grapevines, which are separate, you see them separate, so therefore from a plant perspective, they're individual, yet they all share the same genome. What's an individual? One genome now shared by a whole bunch of individuals. How do you explain that in the theory of evolution? We, 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 we don't know. We don't have an answer. So an individual is typically one body, one genome. One set of genes, one body. That's the relationship, one-to-one, -one, that's clear. Nature is not that simple. Poplar tree. Poplar tree sprouts trees from the same roots. So poplar grove really has a bunch of trees that all share the same genome. Yet each tree has its own life. You can cut the other trees, this one keep on living. They're not one individual, they're multiples because they're different trees. As I said, you cut one, the others don't die. They keep on living, but they have the same genome. How do you account for that? Remember, the theory of evolution accounts for everything, not just animal. Everything alive. There's no answer for this one. It gets more interesting. In the ocean, many animals butt off duplicates of themselves that then live as colonies whose members are physically attached to one another. Corals. Tunicates, hydra, bryozans, sea anemones. The Portuguese man-o-war jellyfish is a floating colony. This jellyfish is a floating colony. Like a space station of animals drifting through an oceanic universe. A whole bunch of individuals all sharing the same genome. In plants and in many animals, numerous species have an alternation of generations in which an asexually reproducing phase leads to a sexually reproducing phase. Followed again by an asexual phase. So the individual created at the sexual stage by the union of a sperm and an egg create many bodies. Nature has a bewildering number of ways of combining things. So this beautiful concept that you hear of it constantly that I told you about is so neat and nice. One individual and it's all competing and all that wonderful stuff breaks completely when you really look at nature up close. That doesn't work. Now, not only that, the other can be true. Many genomes can live in the same body. An example, corals. Now, you've seen corals, right? You've seen corals? They're beautiful. What causes the color of the corals? Answer, algae. Corals are colorless. They have no color to them. What happens is the algae come in and live inside the coral. The coral lives off the nutrients from the algae, and the algae lives in the coral. What is an individual? And algaes can come and go. So the coral can be green, and then the algae takes off, and then you get what we call uh, coral bleaching, because the coral becomes transparent again, and another algae shows up, and now it's red. So you have, in, you have a mix of genomes within the same individual. How do you account for that? We don't know. 
So these are real issues of the theory. These are areas where we can really sit down on evolutions and ask them those questions. Those are the questions that really give them migraines. All that other stuff, it, it doesn't even create a dent in their armor because it doesn't even apply. That does. Computational model for randomness. We've got 14.4 billion years. I want a computational model for randomness. I want, to tell, I want them to tell me what is the distribution. What is the random distribution they're using? Is it used by all of them uniformly? Do they all ascribe to it? How do they explain how this random model works within the allotted time period that we have? We don't have answers to those questions. So without a computational model, there isn't really a back predictive model to explain how things happen. Compared to the Big Bang that goes step by step, breaks it and slices it and explains, at least attempts to explain what happened, we have nothing here. Nothing. Particularly this issue of explain to me how species move from one to the other. Right? There is no real answer to this because the theory doesn't have that power in it. Maybe because it's too complicated computationally, but it doesn't exist today. And then finally, this linear progression is really an interesting problem. Why do we move from less complex to more complex? Remember, evolution is about individuals adapting better and better to their environment. The problem is that if you think about the environment, weather, nature, etc., yes, it has changed, but it hasn't drastically changed. Not enough to explain we have to go from microbe to a human being just so that we can adapt to our environment. Do you understand the problem? Why do we require such complex evolution just so that species can adapt to their environment? It's too much to ask. We don't need that. How can you account for complexity? Not irreducible complexity. Just that the fact we constantly move from less complex to more complex. Why do we have this linear progression towards more complex? Why complexity? Why didn't we go from more complex to less complex, which makes more sense. Because less complex have what? Fewer requirements. They can survive better than more complex. You can make that argument. Why going this way? Well, why? Because of the facts. Okay, okay, but set the facts aside and tell me how your theory works to explain it from within. Just, just because we have the facts. Is complexity required for survival? If so... Why does more complex forms of life coexist with simpler forms of life? How come we still have bacteria and everything else, and we have a complex... Why isn't everything moved up in a complex chain? Why only certain individuals? What's the necessity behind it? We don't know. If coexistence of complex and simpler organisms work today, why... Couldn't we say that it worked in the past? It looks like we have an environment here where complex and simple coexist. This level of complexity that we have today shows that adding complexity to life doesn't really change the equation. You still have simple organisms alive today. If that's the case, why is it that we did not have the same equation back then? What caused that change? starting from a couple of microbes floating around and finishing off with all this variety 
can, can evolution truly explain the variety that we find? It claims to, but it doesn't have a proper model to explain it. All right? So, to recap, there are two sets of challenges. One that is pretty much thorough, sterile and will not get you very far. Creationism, Paley's God, irreducible complexity, the second law of thermodynamics. None of that really gets you anywhere when you're arguing the theory of evolution because it, they really missed the mark. The ones that are fruitful are the abiogenesis, origin of life, monophyletic versus polyphyletic, individualism, individuality, sexual orientation. I haven't talked much about this one, but the way Paley had, had a notion of uh, sexuality is very chauvinistic, and yet it's still today embedded in a theory, and it doesn't fit the facts. I'll say this much. Okay? And the computational model of randomness, what is the model that, is there a standard model everybody's using today to say this is how randomness works in, in evolution? You can ask two evolutionists and get four answers. And then linear progression. Why do we have this linear progression from simplicity to complexity? Why is evolution demanding that? You might say that this was a fluke. It just happened like this here, but on other planets it may not happen. It could be different. That's speculation because we haven't seen how it happens on other planets. Once we do, we may have a clear, clear, clearer picture. So overall, in a theory of evolution, there are parts which are solid. They're the best we have today. Is it cast in stone? Have we covered everything? Did we, we have answers for everything in biology? Far from it. Far from it. In 100 years from now, our children's children will also still be debating the theory. And who knows what, which form it will take between now and then. Is it perfect? Certainly not. But the core, there is something in the core that is, from a scientific point of view, very interesting and, and fruitful. Hopefully, we can participate in this debate and clear the field, help clear the field by separating what is theology from what is science. As Catholics, we know that our, the foundation of our faith is not science can never be science, will never be science. Science changes every 25 years. Right? The foundation of our faith is the liturgy. Theology is a higher truth than scientific truth. It requires, of course, the grace that we receive in our baptism, the grace of faith. It is irrational. It is rooted in rationality in that it does not contradict our reason, nor does it ask us to shut down our reason when we believe. Just as I told you before, love works exactly the same way. When you love somebody, you don't require mathematical proof to demonstrate your love. You require action, acts of love. Well, so it is with faith. No different. Re love is not against reason. Love is reasoned. Love is reasonable. Right? So is faith. The whole panorama of the scientific world that we've seen so far it has lights and shadows. Some areas we made good progress. Some areas we understand things better. Others we have mysteries and questions that are deeper today than they were before. A couple of lectures ago, I told you that the root, that the center of a uh, of the uh, black hole was believed to be a point of singularity. Today, if you follow those folks on a string theory bandwagon, they'll tell you that this is not so. The the center of a black hole is made by a ring of neutrons, and, the other, and on the other side of the ring, there is a parallel universe. Okay? Who knows? 
point is that it shifts, it changes, because really we don't know. We are groping in the dark, we're still discovering. Whereas when you look at the theology, and hopefully I'll be able to show you that when we study Scripture, you will find that things are deep, yet much more um, <coughs> harmonious than what you find in the sciences. At the end of the day, remember always that it is up to each one of us to deepen our faith in the Lord, and the Lord is a person, not a book, and He has answers to what is really the yearning of our hearts. And that's where we want to go. We want to go to Him for those answers. Remember also that this subject that I just, that I brushed upon right now, these six lectures, is not going to go away. As a matter of fact, if things continue to progress the way they are right now in sciences, we are at the cusp of a one, probably one of the strongest heresy the church will face in all of her existence the heresy of materialism that will come about once science reaches that threshold that allows us to live 100, 200, 300, 500, 1,000 years. Something we cannot even conceive of today will probably happen within the next two generations. How will the faith resist to this onslaught? when you can live for 250 years, easy. When you can go to the hospital and you have a whole farm of your own organs, grown out of your own cells, waiting for you. So every 50 years or so, you go in and you get a complete workout. How will one not see in the body nothing more than a car? How will the dignity of the human body resist to this onslaught? You understand? This is not a subject that we're just touching upon out of curiosity. This is going to be the kernel of one of the strongest heresies we're going to face because, because it has such a great good. The way we prepare for it will be, as always, by rooting ourselves in the church, building our house on the rock, will not be deceived, nor can it deceive, because it is truth and goodness itself, the Lord Himself. And by understanding our faith and really orienting our compass towards heaven according to the teachings and revelation God gave us through His church. That's what we're doing, to prepare ourselves and be ready to help others when a time comes when God calls every one of us to give witness to His truth. God bless you. We have time for questions. Yes. The argument is, the question is, how does evolution defend the notion that species evolved when we don't have any material proof of evolution because the links that we have so far are so sparse, so sparse and of dubious quality? The answer, the standard answer, is you're dealing with biology, that there are very few sites where we're doing excavation, and that we cannot really count on the fossil record to prove anything. The, that's a dubious argument. I'll grant you that. The more honest argument would be that um, we don't really know what the model is. What don't we, we really don't know what we're looking for. We don't have the pattern that says you need to have this creature here and that creature there and this other creature here. So we're really collecting pieces and trying to figure out how they all fit together. Is it going to ever happen you have the whole history? I don't know. It's a good question. 
But I'm, I won't be surprised if one day they really come up on a fun, upon a fine that makes sense. It's going to be tough. The point, though, is that the really strong argument is in the genes. Why do we all share the same genes? And why is it that in the DNA there are all whole sections that look like what is considered to be junk? Whole sections in the DNA make absolute no sense. They're not used to create the genes. So there are indications when you study genetics that there are certain things that were there, just a remnant of a past use of those genes, which are no, no, they're not used anymore. Although today, junk genes, the junk DNA theory is being challenged. There seems to be more to it than meets the eye. But it is true that we have these, these common segments that we all share among all cre creation. How do you explain that? If it's not common, why is it in everybody? Because God created everything. Sure, but how? What is, the other, what is the alternate framework? That's the question. So to your question, yes, the, the uh, fossil record is certainly far from being sufficient to prove or demonstrate that this theory is true. There has been some progress made. We found some types of creatures, although it's always, always open to debate. However, the genetic record is much stronger. Yes. Right. I mean, the way they explain it, the, the way they deal with this is that when, this, when life occurred, it wasn't just one organism. It was a whole pool of them that occurred in one spot. And that's how they were able. So you have a whole community, again, which is implicit here, although it's not always explicitly called. The, that is conceivable, although we really don't understand how it happened, what is the model behind it. The problem in all of this is why did it happen only in one place? Why couldn't it have happened in other places? Pardon? We don't know. That's what I'm saying. We have no real intelligence. There's some models out there that try to explain this, but nothing. And, and, and how would you be able to ever prove that unless you'd be able to recreate it? Which would be a really interesting experiment. Yes, exactly. Look, faith is always reasonable. You only believe through your reason. Right? What we do in Bible study is removing obstacles for reason to assent to the truth of faith and allow the will to make that ascent. Science oftentimes is also similar. You use your reason to remove obstacles from that intuition you had about what must have happened. So it is, it's a very similar process that you follow in both cases. One being higher and more noble because it deals with a person and it's a divine person, whereas the other is just dealing with facts. Yeah? Yes. Good question. Question is, uh, right before the flood, God said uh, the life of man would be 120 years. And a common, a common understanding is that he meant by that that the life every man will live no more than 120 years. But in reality, that's not what is intended here. What was intended is that he will not wait longer than 120 years before bringing about the flood. It had nothing to do about the length of life of any particular individual. All right? So that there's no application there to how long a man can live. But that's a good question. Yes. Well, you see, the problem, with the, the problem with the argument that carbon dating is not reliable would be to say that the rate of decay of carbon changes over time. Another argument you would hear is that the speed of light changes over time. If there are those changes over time which are inexplicable by the laws of physics, we have to say that the laws of physics themselves have changed over time. As soon as you introduce this argument into the universe, you are obtaining chaos. 
Because if this law is changed, why did this law didn't change? And if that law changed, how come everything else doesn't change? And you can see how it's distinctly Protestant to hold to these positions because then you can explain it whichever way you want. So it's a very dangerous position to say that the rate of decay changes simply because it's convenient for me. The, the Schroeder turn is a very complicated question is about the carbon dating of the Schroeder turn. The carbon dating of the Schroeder turn is a very complex issue because the Schroeder turn, number one, went, un, underwent two fires. And the second fire, it was in a box of silver that melted. Number two, the place, and this was recognized as recently as about two months ago by the Vatican, and where they took the shreds, whereby three places where the sisters had sewn the shroud in another piece. So it's not even obvious that they took it from the wrong spot, from the right spot. So there are now talks about redoing the, 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 the test against on, on the shroud a second time. And we'll see where this goes. So that is not an, an, an applicable, applicable argument. The point, though, is that in every experiment we have in a scientific lab, you would see that the carbon dating, the, the decay of the carbon-14 uh, versus what, CC-14 versus C-16, because they compare one to the other, is consistent and constant. If we start saying that it changes, what else does it change? What else changes out in the universe? And why does God confuse us more than we're confused by introducing laws that change this way. God is not about hiding things from us. He wants us to discover what he did. That's fair. That's a fair argument you bring. If you can show in a scientific manner that there are errors in our measurement, everybody will switch. But to introduce a concept of decay of carbon-14 because it fits well with my preconceived notion of how the world works is not science. You see the difference between the two? Yeah. No scientist is claiming that the dating on the carbon-14 is the end of the story. If somebody can show that, was, that we have mistaken concept around it and prove it in lab, we have to change. No doubt there. Right? But let's, let's set up the lab. Let's do some scientific work and establish that's the, that, that, that is the fact. That'd be great. All right? But not, let's not hypothesize about what must have happened without any proof in our hands simply because we needed to fit a specific understanding of Genesis. Fair? Okay. Yes. Exactly. Exa- I mean, exactly. There, yeah, there is no... All the hypo- I mean, all the ideas, I mean, many of the things that the creations are bringing as science has no scientific power behind it. It has no power to predict future or past events, and it's not repeatable in lab, and it's very difficult to prove. Now, there are many good work that they're doing as far as science goes by being able to run certain experiments and show certain things that just doesn't fit the theory of evolution. All well and great. No question there. But as far as the scientific framework goes, where is it? Show it to me. I haven't seen it. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.